0: hey guys this is sam Saggers and right now over the christmas and new year period i'm taking a break i hope you are too whilst i'm away though i'm releasing the hottest four episodes of 2021 that's right the people have spoken they voted with their earbuds and now you get the best of the best over a month the most downloaded episode of 2021 was episode 33 how to borrow money and master finance So if you're new, this is the one that everyone wants. And if you've already listened, then I reckon you'll pick up some more nuggets second time round. Enjoy this one, folks. The throwaway comment was she'd wish she'd bought 10 properties 15 years ago back in 2005, 2006, Um, and she literally used the words. I wish I'd bought 10 properties in 2005. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show is all about code cracking. We're going to dig into what it takes to build a multi-million dollar property portfolio and why finance is really your best vehicle along your journey of building wealth. Understanding how to create more finance in your life, how to borrow more money, and how to ultimately live on passive income is a bit of a mystery for many people. Yes, we're going to solve a mystery today. The mystery of building a multi-million dollar property portfolio, understanding what the pros do to pay less for mortgages and to own more real estate. It's a pretty good combination. For me, it's one of my biggest skill sets. I think I have two skills in life. One of them is understanding how to get more capital into the market, to borrow more money, to be wealthier. And the second is pulling lint out of my tumble dryer. At home, I am obsessed with pulling lint out of my tumble dryer. For me, it's a daily routine. I just love it for some reason. I love real estate and pulling lint out of tumble drivers. Today's show is a code cracker, so let's get started because I think this episode will run a good hour and there's going to be bucket loads of value bombs, so I don't want you to miss out with me waffling about lint. I tell you what, finance is the key to capital and the more capital you've got, the more exposure you have to the real estate economy. As I alluded to, real estate is just a game of finance, really with properties on the other side of it. The more we start to learn about finance, the more we can actually grow our wealth and actually play the game and beat the banks at their own game. Tell you what, when it comes to wealth creation, we've got to take this stuff seriously. As we know, when we wake up 20 years from now, we want to actually be proud of what we've created and live off what we've created, whether that's our beautiful career or our adventures into the property marketplace. I was just at a cafe uh, having a morning coffee, chilling out, minding my own business, and two ladies were having a little chat, reminiscing about the days of old. They were a little crestfallen with the rise of the marketplace which is occurring right now. They were explaining they wished they had bought last year uh, because the properties that they wanted to buy this year are now just again looking like they're out of reach. One of the ladies made a, uh, a throwaway comment which I think is so important. The throwaway comment was... She'd wish she'd bought 10 properties 15 years ago, back in 2005, 2006, um, and she literally used the words, I wish I'd bought 10 properties in 2005. Amazing, right? Because I'm sitting there going, you know what, since uh, really around that era, I have done nothing but buy properties. So two people at a coffee shop. One is crestfallen because the market's too hot. One is actually very sad that she didn't go out and buy a bucket loads of properties when they were more affordable back in the day. And then there's me, someone who's actually done what they wished they could have. So I think the story actually has led me to the big conversation today as to how we don't end up in 20 years time speaking to our best mate, Jan, about uh, wishing it was easier, wishing we had made better moves back when we had the chance. I tell you what, I think we are also going to wake up in 20 years' time and everything's going to be more expensive. A cup of coffee is not going to be $4.50, it's going to be $7.50. Everything is going to go up in value except relying on our wage. So we need to make some big decisions on what is going to be the foundation of our wealth. Remember, real estate right now is amazing because... Debt, if you have bucket loads of it, is actually an asset. And I say that because if that debt is tied to real estate and it's income producing real estate, your real estate, no doubt, is paying you a surplus of cash flow. Normally, in real estate, it's quite often very common for you to chuck in a few bob, for the tax man to chuck in a few bob, and the renter in your property to pay the difference. However, right now, many properties around Australia are what we call positive cash flow. Fundamentally, the rent from the asset covers the debt, the loan and all of the holding costs and actually pays you a surplus of cash flow. Debt on property is now very much an asset and we really do have a bit of a trifecta unfolding in the context that we have a rising market, lots of growth, capital growth occurring, we can still get great tax deductions if we buy the right property through depreciation. And the debt we choose to take on, we can rent that debt out and create positive cash flow. So understanding the world as it is, as it stands right now, I think many people need to make a brave decision and buy more debt and actually own more assets. And I'm going to show you a little bit about how I went about doing this so that potentially it creates a bit of a lesson for yourself on how to get out and about and put this stuff together. Remember, the Central Bank of Australia is inflating asset prices right now by injecting more money into the economy. They are trying to inflate the economy and we're seeing that through real estate. Real estate shooting up in value. Some neighbourhoods up 10% already, other neighbourhoods potentially on their way to 20%. That's a huge inflation rate. That makes it harder for people who sit on the fence and don't play the game. So I would encourage you, Take advantage of the moment. The Reserve Bank has stated it is not putting up rates anytime soon. It's talking 2024 before it even looks at rates. We are at one-tenth of 1% right now for money. One-tenth of 1% is the cash rate. That is ridiculous. That is absolutely crazy. That is throwing out mortgages fixed or variable from sort of circa 2 to 3%. It's not gonna get cheaper to borrow money and have a mortgage. What it is actually allowing people to do is go from an undercapitalized position to a capitalized position. And again, I'm very passionate about this because fundamentally, most Australians just don't actually have enough capital out in the marketplace. And you can find out the statistics, do your own Googling, like, Right now, 63% of people who are of uh, the appropriate age are on the pension. 63% of Australians end up on the pension and actually it would be higher, but of course a lot of people pass away on their way to the pension. So if you're like me and you're actually forward thinking and you want to live, say, from you know, 55 to, to 85 to 95 with a lot of money doing some fun stuff make the second half of your life even better than the first half of your life. What I want to talk to you about today is vitally important because, again, real estate is just a game of houses and apartments and townhouses with finance in the middle. And the more you treat finances in the same, uh, I guess, with the same affection as you do property, the better off you're going to be financially into the future. And, I mean, we are going through a wealth effect. There is discussions that even lending may become easier. The fact that the market is soaring in value, I think uh, there is no reason to make lending easier at this point. But without question... I want you today to make a bare-ass minimum plan. And my bare-ass minimum plan for you today is to, at the very least, buy three properties in the near future. You might already own one, so that means you only need to get another two. You may own two means you need to get your third. You know, prior to the Royal Commission and APRA uh, causing challenges to the speed limit of investment lending, it was a little bit easier to get loans, but today it is still easier to get loans if you don't provide chaos to your bank. In other words, if you've got a very good financial record, good financial uh, numbers, it's going to be possible for you to get out and borrow. So let's dig into this because recognizing that wealth is a system is a big tick, right? A lot of people aren't recognising wealth as a system. They're just buying any old property right now. They're rushing out to get into the first home buyer market. They're taking on debt on an asset, which they kind of love, but is it actually going to be a great asset into the future? There's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts right now. It's pretty wild. Uh, You know, one would argue we are now in the Wild West, It is the Wild West right now. So I like to recognize wealth as a system. I like to challenge people's thinking about their own personalities, um, their own state of mind. I like to challenge people with the idea that people need to have goals and create a roadmap and stick to that roadmap. I also like to challenge people's thinking about finance and the reality is, I think most people are undercapitalized and need to go and get in more debt. I'll come out and say it. it's a bit controversial, but I'm here to tell you, you're not going to end up wealthy if you don't get out and invest and hold assets and build wealth over the long term. And let's face it, no one wants to end up at good old Lake Weirdo. We all want to be having a cracking holiday, not driving around uh, looking for a uh, weird camping site and hoping uh, it's only $12 for the night not 16 We also obviously when it comes to recognising wealth as a system need to comprehend how real estate markets work, the finance markets work, the share market works and of course then there's things like property selection which takes the challenge to an even higher level. Now I want to tell you a little bit about me, a little bit about my story, a little bit about, you know, I guess what I'm aiming for. So we can get to know each other a bit more and you can learn more about me than the fact I have a fetish for getting lint out of the tumble dryer. In fact, it's the only useful uh gospodar thing I can do around the house. I'm not very handy, but uh yes, people... um Always know me for being the tumble dry fixer guy. Now, i tell you what. The other things you need to know about me is when I started on my wealth journey, I had saved around $30,000 to do that. And over many, many years, basically two decades, that thirty grand has grown into a very handsome property portfolio. I've never made huge amounts of money from my wage. I've made great amount of money from my wage or great amounts of money from my wage, but I've never taken home like half a million dollars or a million dollars or anything like that. And I do sit in the highest tax bracket. I have never been married, but I'm working on that. Uh, I don't have any kids. I've gone it alone the whole time I've invested, albeit for a few joint ventures every now and then. And I waited to buy my family home uh, until I was capitalised in the real estate economy with enough investments. And I actually live in a property which I bought as a great investment and eventually turned it into a PPR in a cracking harbourside suburb of Sydney. But the idea for me was always to build an income-producing property portfolio and to do that by starting out using investment principles rather than being a homeowner. The reason I never wanted to be a homeowner to begin with was it would sabotage my buying power to go out and buy more assets. So over the course of my purchasing career, I got to literally uh, double digit assets. And I got over actually 21 properties in my portfolio at the point or at its peak. And As we know, as we go through purchasing, there's the acquisition phase, then there is the debt reduction phase or consolidation, and then there's living off your income. To do all of that, you need about 20 years. I just happen to be going 20 years. So I've well and truly gone through buying more properties. I don't need more real estate in my portfolio. I like having more real estate in my portfolio, but I fundamentally don't need any more real estate in my portfolio. I have over the years sold down many of those properties and what that has done is put my loan to value ratio at a very low level or low level of debt on the properties I've kept. So remember, I... Started this conversation, like, at a bare minimum, let's get three properties um, over the next short period of time. And I'll explain to you why. I'm on target to retire. uh, And I'm on target to retire with around $485,000 in income from real estate per annum, $485,000 per annum and it's roughly you know it's roughly close to $10,000 a week in rent i'm getting from my assets and obviously that's that's a formula right i'm going to end up on about $1500 a day which will serve the lifestyle i want to lead now if rents were to double between now and completion of my program, my wealth creation program, it is possible that I end up on a passive income from my real estate of a million dollars a year. I kind of doubt that that will actually unfold because I think society is morphing. We're in the fourth industrial economy. Lots of jobs are getting um, obliterated. Uh, Lots of inequality is out in society and i think the reality is society will struggle to pay more and more rent hence why i tend to invest in smart economies where really the demographic of person living in that economy is more geared towards paying more rent so even if i got say a 25% rent increase as opposed to a 100% rent increase over the next 15 years, it's probably fair to say I'll end up on around $600,000, $650,000 worth of income every year coming from my real estate assets. And of course, that is certainly going to cover the cost of things being more expensive. That cup of coffee that today we pay four fifty four dollars for, that is highly likely to cost 7 odd dollars into the future. In fact, the most expensive coffee in Australia is at Brisbane Airport and it costs about $6.80 for a double shot soy latte. And I tell you what, I guarantee you that price has fallen away since no one's going to Brisbane Airport at the moment. But actually, you can buy it fairly well, a $7 coffee today, which is absolutely ridiculous when you think about uh, when you think about that cost right but that is the future. And so again, I've got enough assets and I've got enough capital out in the marketplace. People often ask me, you're buying a property I don't need to buy a property. In fact, it is really probably going to unfold that many property investors like myself make an extra million dollars this year from capital growth in the market. Now, I'll take the million dollars. I don't need the million dollars. This is where you're starting to see richer people get richer and people who have yet to invest or don't play the game stagnating or even dropping uh, down, really, uh, and falling by the wayside with the rat race rolling them. Again, I'll probably make a million dollars this year from capital growth from the marketplace, I don't need a million dollars. I'll take a million dollars. That's great because ultimately for me, I'm on a journey where growth is great and I've had my fair share of growth to buy enough assets to now control real wealth, passive income. Passive income is something for me which is really about uh, transitioning from work to play. So how do all these people manage all this debt? How do people like myself manage like so much debt in the marketplace? There must be some sort of flaw in the system because a lot of people really just struggle to own one property. How do they end up owning three or four or five or 10 or 21 properties in the property marketplace? Well, I think our relationship with finance is probably the biggest part of that puzzle. And I want to give you some tips and strategies around finance today so you can just start to really maybe think about your relationship with finance if you have a formal relationship with money and finance, how to help you uh, actually make better decisions. Now, of course, there's good debt and then there's bad debt when it comes to borrowing money. Credit card, you know, it's bad debt. It's not producing your income. Even your own family home is fundamentally bad debt because the only way to uh, to pay for that family home is to, well, you know, go to work. Good debt is income-producing real estate. Good debt creates passive income. Income. And that's why investment properties quite often are labeled good debt uh, opportunities. So when you have an investment property, all of your costs are tax deductible. So fundamentally, you know, your property management fees, um, your rates, your levies, things like. Um, even your depreciation from the real estate is tax deductible. Your loss of your building fundamentally declining in value is tax deductible. So a lot of people, and there's no real right or wrong, I'm explaining my experience, end up fundamentally never paying off a investment property. And they don't pay off an investment property because they've do actually want to go through this idea of tax minimization? So the idea around that is buy four properties, uh, fundamentally hope at least two go up in value and double, sell those two properties and pay off the debt of the other two investments, i.e. living off Uh, the passive income of that plan. And it's a really good plan. Over the last 20 years, I was first on that journey. I was actually on that roadmap. And for me, it kind of worked out a bit different, but it's going in the same place. And I'll I'll just explain my personal sort of situation for you so you can start to see that having uh, the ability to, to have a plan B and a And a different way of looking at it may just be the way you want to look at it. So I went down the road of paying off my tax-deductible debt before paying off my family home. Now, this is something that many investors actually debate, right? Because if you've got a family home, it's bad debt. It's not tax-deductible. If you've got an investment property, Good debt, it's tax deductible, so why pay it off? And this is where fundamentally you can have the well, tax minimization conversation versus building passive income conversation. I went down the I want to build passive income, uh, not just tax minimization. So the investment properties uh, that I own are fundamentally being paid off, and I'll explain how that is occurring and how I'll end up on really half a million dollars a year in cash flow. So the sheer reason for me was I had a principal place of residence uh, fundamentally as one of my last possible purchases. And I think there's a great saying, you know, invest in places that make sense so you can end up living in a place that makes absolutely no sense. And for me, that was really my journey. For me to control more debt, I actually worked on passive income as opposed to tax minimization. In the beginning, I used tax minimization. And after about 10 years in, I went to passive income strategies. The reason is the income allowed me to control more debt as opposed to paying off a non-income producing asset, a family home, which is certainly more tax effective. But for me, I looked at if I lost my job tomorrow, I want an income from an asset. And the fact that uh, properties have a rental return just simply allowed me... To play in that space, plus I didn't have a PPR. Now, am I confusing everyone? I hope not, because we're going to go on a bit of a journey. Remember, phase one of this wealth plan of building a finance portfolio of of real estate is you know buy four, sell two, uh, and pay off the other two. For me, my 21 properties kind of worked out a bit different. I ended up, as I often call this plan, I just simply call it the one-two-three plan. Buy three properties. Pay down the debt on one of the properties by selling one that's performed and grown exponentially. The second property is now income-producing. It has rent and no debt. And that second property can pay off the third property. In other words... At a very minimal state, you can either have one performing asset to pay off the debt of a second asset, which has income and then pays off the debt of your third asset by accelerating the debt reduction by using all the rent of the second property and all the rent of the third property to debt bust. Now, again, for me, I've ended up in a position where I'm on track for half a million dollars or $485,000 by my retirement age. And fundamentally right now, if I was to lose my job, my income from my assets really is superior than my debt on my assets. So I could stop working tomorrow and still keep my portfolio of assets. I couldn't necessarily make an income from those assets because they're still like 10, 12, 15 years away from being completely debt-free. In other words, every spare cent is going into that debt minimization strategy. So in about 10 years, I can start to really reap the benefit of that cash flow which I've mapped out. Remember, rule number one, get into debt. Step two, sell some assets to pay off the debt of other assets, thus increasing the rent versus the debt. Use the extra rent in things like offset accounts or extra payments to debt bust the passive income you're getting from an income-producing asset. As you pay down the debt, you fundamentally accelerate and you start to really eliminate your debt uh, in record time. As your uh, payments diminish, your rent is much higher than your debt and the gap widens and finally you obviously get to live debt free again there are two versions of this world one is a passive income creation the version i've gone on and then the other version is tax minimization which many smart property investors prefer they prefer the idea that they recoup all of their tax and they fundamentally seldom pay down their passive income uh Assets. No right or wrong. I'm just telling you what's working for me. And without question, what's working for me is creating more passive income from real estate to pay off debt of more real estate. As Kiyosaki says, there's only so many hundred bills in your back pocket. And when I first started in real estate as an investor, I absolutely started with the tax minimization strategy. As I acquired about five properties, my first five properties, I was literally not paying tax. I was getting depreciation back. I was getting everything back in my portfolio. I would say the first five to 10 years of my investment journey was really a tax minimization journey. But the second decade has been absolutely a passive income journey. As my assets have aged, as depreciation allowances have softened, as interest rates have dropped, I've certainly now gone into a very sweet spot of passive income. So you've obviously got to make some really good decisions out in the economy to buy some good real estate. Remember, I would love you to just get to three pieces of real estate if you're scared of going further. But I want to give you some tips around how many of the pros go further and borrow more money than seems feasible by controlling debt, by controlling income. Remember for me, I'm now controlling income. I'm in charge. The property doesn't control me anymore. I control the properties. It's a very interesting place to be because as you start as a property investor, really the property controls you. You might need to tip in every now and then. You might need to uh, you know, save some more money along the journey. As you control the property, you start to really see the compounding effect of all of that wealth coming together. So I think to build this plan, to end up financing bucket loads of real estate, We need to also make sure that we understand the difference between bad debt, good debt and bad debt and good investments and bad investments. So I want to make sure you're in the right swim lane. If you think about swimming and you think about a lot of people go a bit zigzag and if I can help you avoid zigzagging up the pool and you follow the line and you follow the swim lane, you're 100% going to end up in a place you want to be. So my rule is I have three pots where I put real estate in at a glance. Pot number one is real estate which is too costly to own. It's very negatively geared and you need to pull hundreds of dollars out of your back pocket to keep that real estate afloat. Today, it's probably less of a problem, to be fair, because the rates are so low, low. Uh, you know, at a tenth of 1%. But uh, you don't want to buy an investment property today yielding 2%. I mean, that's ridiculous. You're borrowing money at 2% and you're getting 2%. You're now forking out to own an investment property. And you know what? There are investment properties out there that are really that. And that makes no sense to me because that's just going to hold you back from building more assets and building more wealth. So today you can go out to Western Sydney and buy, you know, a million dollar house and it'll rent, you know, for $520 a week. And that is fundamentally just silly in my view. There is a sweeter spot to go to. So let's get out of that pot. The second pot for me to avoid as uh, a bad swim lane is really faux pas equity deals or blunder equity deals or assets, which are really, you know, past their use by date. They require a lot of capital costs to to upgrade. Um, They're diminishing value when it comes to their appeal. The rents are dropping because of the diminishing value of their appeal. You've got things like also the inequality divide, which is occurring in society. So those properties are now being uh, promoted to rat bags because no one wants to live there. You become a slumlord, not a landlord. And fundamentally, when you look at the mathematics into the future, the rising costs to service that property of repairs, maintenance and capital costs outweighs your income and you end up with this zero sum effect of on paper you're getting you know a six percent gross return but actually you're ending up with you know five dollars a week in your hand because your costs are absolutely getting chewed away by the tenants turnover um, the challenges with the asset the repairs and maintenance of the asset, the diminishing value of the asset And really you end up with this kind of property that you're paying uh, servicing on. You're fundamentally, it's on your balance sheet, but it does nothing. It's a really uh, blunderous faux pas piece of real estate. And I've certainly bought them in the past and let them go because they are fundamentally flawed. They do not create income. And think about, you know, what I'm trying to achieve by trying to get to, you know, near on half a million dollars in passive income without, uh in, in really based on today's economy. And of course, I'm uh, also hoping that the areas I choose and the locations I choose get rental growth because the demographics of those neighbourhoods and the assets and functionality of that real estate is going to inspire fundamentally people to pay more for it. But then the polar opposite of that is real estate, which is going backwards, not forwards, backwards in appeal. And really, one would argue with the rising tide of inequality that that real estate won't grow in value, but all around you, costs will inflate. In other words, you will get to the point where you have this as an income-producing asset and it fundamentally produces no income because inflation on, on uh, rates and taxes and, um, and strata fees and insurance just wipe the asset out. The sweet spot is uh, certainly the pot where I want people to invest. That might mean saving a bit more money to buy a better asset. And we'll talk about that. but absolutely, the sweet pot is a life of uh, good properties. Uh, not being a slumlord, being a landlord and also finding uh, the balance between capital growth and yield and of course location. So we want assets that can absolutely pay their own way in this marketplace in really good locations that you wake up in 10, 20, 30 years knowing your property is in demand but also in rental demand and hasn't fundamentally diminished in its appeal so we've got to go out and borrow money and we've got to borrow bucket loads of it and i tell you what there certainly will be risk adverse people listening to what i say and probably disagree and fundamentally tell you you should probably just buy your family home and never buy an investment property that's cool if you want to listen to them there's plenty of podcasts on that stuff that's not me i encourage people to go for it I certainly think a lot of people need to understand themselves before they go in that direction. But absolutely, you can get out there and buy multiple properties and build a multi-million dollar property portfolio. Remember, banks assess risk um, and the more, well, order you can bring to your life, the less risky they think you are. The more chaos in your life, the more chaotic they think you are and the more risk they associate with you. So if you can just really start to map out a good financial health version of you, you're going to go places. And I'm going to give you really my version of going places when it comes to finance. Remember, my position, just to be clear, was, you know, I didn't have dependents. Uh, I, um, you know, wasn't married, I didn't go and buy my first family home, um, I bought investments. So my journey might be a little bit different to yours, and it may just mean for you, you change tact or pivot or undo something to get where you need to go. Remember, you have to create order in your finance world to create more capital to go into the marketplace, and that may mean giving up something you're hanging onto. To become wealthy out of real estate, you need some basic principles. You need a job. If you can get yourself a second income, that's great because really the main driver of buying more assets is your income from your, uh, from your job and your, your, your second income streams. Uh, you have to be a good budgeter. You have to be able to earn, uh, well, spend less than you earn. And of course, you can't have you know, credit problems and things like that to build a massive property portfolio. And for me, as I alluded to, I mean, it was probably a little bit easier than, say, someone of my age starting out now with three or four kids um, because they are your dependents and the bank services them as part of, really, your cost structure. So again, it just... Uh, It can be done and you can end up with three, you can end up with four, you can end up with five. I teach the five cities, five properties plan. But even if we can get you to three properties right now, if we can get you that next property, um, you're well and truly going to get a lot out of that plan. Now to cover some finance, I think it's really important to just give a five second overview of finance and terminology First one is interest and principal. Obviously, the interest is the interest part of a loan. The principal is the principal part of the loan, fundamentally paying the loan back or just paying the interest. Uh, variable affixed is fundamentally in the money market world. You can fix a loan and just pay a set fee or you can float with the market and ride the ups and downs. An offset is an account link link to your property loan, which allows you to uh, offset cash in that account. So let's say you had a debt of $300,000, you had $100,000 in the offset, your debt really now is only $200,000, so you would be paying uh, your fees and interest and or principal on $200,000, not $300,000. All these things are really important because, as you'll discover, the pros move money around, play with mortgages. Um, They do all sorts of things to give themselves a better opportunity to get more capital into the market, to buy more assets, to live on more passive income. So other terminologies, uh, LVR, loan-to-value ratio. All that fundamentally means is your um, loan versus uh, your you know your value and so quite often when people uh, buy a piece of real estate they might use a 10% deposit or a 20% deposit so the terminology would be I'm buying on a 90% LVR because I'm using a 10% deposit or I'm buying on an 80% LVR because I'm using a 20% deposit LMI is the next term I'll quickly teach you that is lender's mortgage insurance Fundamentally, if you borrow money over 80% in Australia, you need to insure the loan, you need to pay for it, and it doesn't insure you, it insures the bank that if there's any loss on the loan, they can recoup their money. Lender's mortgage insurance. Now, I'm going to give you eight portfolio power principles that I teach people and The principles, will use some of these terminologies, hence why I'm explaining the terminologies. The first principle I think is so important for any property investor is to control your buying power. And you control that by understanding the different loan products out in the market. And this is where, in your team, you need a gun broker. Brokers can really absolutely maximise results. For example, you could go out and you know, opt for uh, some buying power for, let's say, a $100,000 deposit, what can you borrow? Well, one bank might offer you $400,000 and an alternative bank might offer you $600,000. That's a huge difference. And of course, that allows you buying power, which is more capital in the market, but more importantly, usually allows you to buy in a better location and a better suburb and avoid those two pots I was talking about, highly negatively geared real estate or real estate, which is fundamentally never going to pay you an income because it's a a, a blunder. So again, as you build a property portfolio, you really need to play the game of buying uh, your buying power. And this is where good brokers really try and map out not only your first property, but your second property and your third property and create this kind of like wealth alignment between what's possible in the marketplace. A lot of people fall into the trap that they become rate sensitive. They're like, well, I can get the 2% rate. Um, That's that's what I'm going to go for. And that 2% rate actually means their buying power is is potentially the lowest buying power. Just by paying an extra, two, uh, you know, instead of 2, 2.22%, all of a sudden they can borrow $600,000. Again, this is why you need a six-star team, really, to help guide you on your way, and quite often why mortgage brokers are really the best ally for property investors. Remember, real estate is just a game of of properties with finance in the middle, the more we can control finance, the better off we're going to be. When you first start buying real estate, I would encourage people to use LMI, Lenders Mortgage Insurance. I bought my first property on a 95% loan. Today, if I was to go out and buy a piece of real estate, even though I do not need to buy any more real estate, I am certainly um, well and truly on my way to financial freedom. A bit addicted to it though, it's a little bit of a a problem at times, but I would have to borrow on about a 65% LVR. Again, today many people can borrow as high as 95%. That's great leverage, but you'll have to pay lenders mortgage insurance. And again, I think the reason you would do that is your recycle time to buy a second property. And I always encourage, you know, pending application, people to buy their first two properties using lender's mortgage insurance. Now, let's just use an example. Let's say, for example, you were buying a $500,000 property and you wanted to use a 10% deposit plus pay lender's mortgage insurance, that fundamentally probably means you would pay $50,000 deposit and maybe $15,000 in lender's mortgage insurance meaning you've still got $35,000 sitting in your buffer or your offset account the alternative is to put too much cash into the marketplace and then run out of cash to go again and of course in doing that it's quite often you pay a 20% deposit and uh in that example, a $500,000 property, you would pay $100,000. Um, and then you wouldn't have that extra thirty thousand dollars sitting in your offset account. The reason this is really crucial in the beginning is you want to start saving as much as you can to get back into the marketplace. And potentially, if your real estate goes up, you can pull some equity out and you're good to go again. Again, the more real estate you own, the LVR drops. And really at your third property, you would be faced with the dilemma of putting a 20% deposit down on real estate. And by your sixth or seventh or eighth property, it's probably more like a 30% deposit or even 40% deposit to get out and build more wealth. Again, The main reason you do this is recycle time. As you're building your assets, you want to get your uh, cash on cash return going. You want to put your cash into the market, you want to pull it out quickly. If you don't even have to put your cash into the market, that is as good as pulling it out quickly. Next power lesson is always be saving. You know, for me, building this portfolio I built a lot of it was not built from recycling equity, a lot of it was built from saving, just being diligent around how I spent in my early years um, and I always worked off the principle, um, you know, if you, if you want an easy life later, work hard in the beginning, if you want a hard life later, take it easy in the beginning. And for me, I simply have always created budgets, which I really is the power lesson uh, spend less than you earn, put aside some money, put that money to work in things like offsets and save your way to buying more real estate. And of course, use equity if you can. I'm dealing with an awesome client at the moment and you know we did her servicing, she saved $50,000. She can only buy like a $266,000 piece of real estate. She goes out and saves another 30 grand she'll jump up to around $500,000. Think about what you can buy for like, what was it, $285,000 as opposed to $500,000. That is fundamentally buying a problem versus buying an opportunity. And of course, for her, she was coached to go back and save. Forget about the real estate market. Go back and build more money. And that will be her third property, which she is about to embark on She just needs four or five more months putting away her pennies and she is good to go again. There's a lot of lessons in that because I think a lot of property investors just expect growth and never do anything on their own accord to make extra money to put into the real estate market. I found you need a combination of everything. The combination of saving but also obviously a combination of recycling equity which is the next power lesson. Let's face it, real estate can give birth to other real estate. Real estate's uh, an amazing tool because if you can create equity in real estate and you can service that equity, you can go out and borrow that equity and put it into the market and buy another piece of real estate. Let's say you had a property, you had a debt on it for $500,000 and it's all of a sudden worth $800,000 in the middle there there is some equity and you can borrow that equity and use it and use the rental returns from the real estate you want to buy to buy more real estate and again this is where you have to consider your overall portfolio what it looks like hence why i went down the passive income route because the more passive income i had the more i could borrow and actually buy more real estate. The next power lesson is to understand how security works. Yes, security. And I am talking about the cross-securitization of lending. What happens to many property investors is they wedge themselves because they do not understand how banking works. Banks have sneaky little clauses in their contracts that fundamentally state that if any security is connected to each other, that security must be of a minimum loan-to-value ratio before any equity can be released. In other words, let's say you are using ABC Bank to buy real estate, and ABC Bank uh, helped you buy your first property, and that property uh, went up by three hundred thousand dollars. They then lend you some equity and your second property that you buy goes down by $300,000 for easy maths. You uh, still have equity in your first property and you want to go and buy your third property. All of a sudden, you can't understand why you've got equity in that property and even though the other one's not performing right now, you've still got equity in your first one. However, that's not how the banks look at it. They actually look at your money connected with the property which has gone backwards, really margin call it with the property which has gone forwards. In other words, you'll be stuck. Of course, the easy way around that is fairly simple. Just use different banks, different lenders all the time so you never go through equity lock. Equity lock is something that really bugs, bugs investors. They think they've got all this equity in their property and it's locked up with the same bank and they just cannot tap it. And because it's locked up with the same bank as well, that bank's got only one servicing calculator and so uh, trying to get that equity out and using that bank's servicing calculator just becomes this kind of real challenge. Of course, many people get around this by using multiple different lenders at any one time. And it is really as simple as that. And a good broker really does guide you on that journey of making sure you've got independent security. So if one property was to go backwards um, and many properties you own went forwards, you can still moment with the bad property not holding you back from the good property. Remember, equity locks are a real curse if you don't actually use them. And what I mean by that is quite often people have what we call floating equity. They could have a property today worth $600,000. And, you know, the debt on it's $300,000. And that $300,000 worth of equity, less LVR, and I'm just using some easy maths, um, is floating. And Quite often, this also holds people back from building a better portfolio. What I mean by that is, let's say that $600,000 property now drops to $400,000 with your debt of $300,000, your $200,000 of equity has disappeared overnight. Equity is air. When you can turn that air into a, 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 a redraw of money, you actually, uh, even if the money, even if the equity was to disappear, you would still have access to that cash. Now, this is the interesting part about real estate. Real estate, if you uh, liquefy your equity from air to cash, the banks don't margin call it, even if your real estate goes backwards. And if you buy the right real estate, it seldom goes backwards. It can dip here and there. But fundamentally, you would not get margin called on your cash. But as equity is air, it can disappear very, very quickly. So the cool part of that is if you've pulled your equity out and liquefied it into cash, even if the market drops, you can keep going and you're not stuck uh, really being held back for years trying to regain that equity to go again to buy more assets. So are you starting to see how many property investors start to end up with multiple assets and, you know, like me, $10,000 a week in rent coming in? You know, I've got a client, I had a client who posted just the other day on our private Facebook group that I think they were up to $265,000 in annual rent. Amazing. Had another client uh, Post very similar up to about $180,000 in income. This is, this is what it's about, guys. Like these, these guys are mapping this out because they're playing the finance game. They're not playing the real estate game. Remember, we have to play the banks at their own game. And a couple of little pro tips that are often used are things like understanding loan terms pretty typical today to get either a 25 or 30 year loan term and part of that loan term you can get an interest only portion. So what tends to happen for many property investors is they take on one loan for the life of the property. And really this is a bit flawed because every five years, seven years, 10 years, it's a really good opportunity to potentially start the loan cycle again. If you've paid down some debt on the income-producing asset and you've been able to lower the LVR, you fundamentally start to work out how to increase more cash flow by starting the loan again. So let's say you had, I don't know, a million dollar loan with the property um, and you fundamentally, it's a 30-year loan, but you've paid off half of it and you've still got 15 years to go on that loan and you only owe $500,000. Well, guess what? Why not start a 30-year loan on $500,000? That'll save you literally thousands of dollars every month and that thousands of dollars every month you're saving creates more opportunity to go and reinvest in other assets. Again, this is, you might have the ability to put it in your offset or just put it in a savings account and invest in more real estate. Play the game. Uh, interest only is a big part of the game. And quite often what happens is for some property investors, they get a 30-year loan, and that 30-year loan allows them to uh, take a five-year interest-only dynamic. And that interest-only dynamic means you're not paying the principal. But fundamentally, at year 25, you've got to start paying the principal and interest, and of course, that debt is spread over 25 years when it could have been spread over 30 years. So, what happens with this five years interest only section? Well, it's like putting your mortgage on pause for five years and saving more money. Let me give you some insights. Uh, you know, a $400,000 property, uh, you've put, you know, $100,000 in it as a deposit. So you owe $300,000. Um, let's say your monthly uh, mortgage was, is Interest in principal, 2100 as opposed to 1300 interest only. So you're saving $800 a month in not paying the mortgage. What you're actually trying to do is, well, you're actually trying to save that $800 and put it to work somewhere else. You're uh, fundamentally holidaying, paying the uh, principal, and looking to actually relocate that $800 a month to a better place. And that better place should be not JB Hi-Fi, but actually a place where you can get a better return, more real estate, more real estate. So all of a sudden you get to 25 years and you've got this uh, more expensive loan. So again, you've just got to weigh up that cost in the initial five years whether you can do something faster and quicker with that money. Or you've got to then restart your mortgage again and work out how to start a 30-year loan term. Remember, uh, again, what we're trying to do here is get more working cash flow to create more working capital and make your money work for you as opposed to you working for your money. Again, some great strategies the pros use. They use offsets all the time. They use restarting loan terms when necessary. They use recycling equity and equity locks. They use uh, repayment cycles, things like not paying monthly but paying weekly or fortnightly to uh, have... More debt reduction because there's just more payment cycles in that principle. And don't be afraid to restart the clock. You know, we always teach Rule 55, which fundamentally says around 55 is the last sort of time you can set yourself up with a 30 year mortgage. And the reason is obviously you're going to be 85 at the time of your last payment. So, banks don't necessarily want to lend people 30-year home loans over the age of 55. Now, I'll tell you what, uh, my dad got away with it. At age 75, he got a 30-year mortgage, which fundamentally means he'll be 105 the last day he paid for it. He pays for his mortgage. This is why we had the Royal Commission, because my dad, who's 75, fundamentally borrowed on a 30-year mortgage, and now has to live to 105 before he makes his final payment. So the Royal Commission stopped that, and now it's more like age uh, 55. So again, think about this stuff. Think about your debt management. Think about your cash flow management. Think about your spare cash flow. These are all the power lessons we need to learn to be a great investor. Now, for me, I could have never have built my portfolio to end up where I'm, the trajectory I'm on, which is to end up with about half a ton in cash flow per annum uh, paid to me. And the reason, one of the big reasons I ended up with a lot of assets was I decided to take on Lodoc Lending. Now, doc lending has its risks and I'm not here to tell you as a caveat to go out and get a doc loan. If you're a loose cannon, you don't want a doc loan. But fundamentally, you need to know what a doc loan is and potentially, you might be capable of getting one and getting more money to invest in real estate. Today, my highest LODOC loan, I pay around 5.6% for the money. However, my debt versus my income, well and truly justifies what would seemingly be a high interest rate, 5.6%. However, if you think about it, seven years ago, if you got a home loan at 5.6%, you would be thrilled, right? The fact that money has virtually deflated to nothing, and interest rates are so cheap, is actually a massive opportunity for people who don't qualify through normal lending conditions to consider no-doc or no doc or light-doc loans. Fundamentally, all that is is a loan where you pay a higher risk fee for the money and you get generally a lower LVR to compensate the higher risk fee. So you have to put more of a deposit in. But as I alluded to, as you grow assets... You don't buy your 10th asset on a 90% LVA on a 10% deposit. That does not happen. So when uh, when you get the chance, maybe you consider LODOC um, if you think you can uh, manage money. If you cannot manage a 1000 bucks, do not get a LODOC loan. In 2007, I borrowed uh, to buy a property on a LODOC loan at 13%. I paid $400,000 for the property. Today, that property is worth close to a million dollars. That 13%, I borrowed for two years and refinanced that property back into a more like today's market rate, whatever it is, 2 or 3%. Who knows? These are so cheap. Um, so a temporary solution to get yourself into the market. It's absolutely low doc if you can afford it. Now, i tell you what, um, I always coach people to consider their blended rate rather than just the rate of the property. If you look at my portfolio, I've got a couple of loans there which are heavier, circa 5% low doc, And then I've got some cheaper loans at like two and three and and 3.5%, my blended rate is actually a lot lower. And this is where a lot of property investors fail to comprehend that building wealth is about putting capital into the marketplace and being willing to take on a little bit of risk for a, a fair amount of reward. And again, you've just got to be really smart about how you fundamentally look at money. The reality is banks will probably never see you as creditworthy to build a huge portfolio. So if you really want to go for it, you've got to fundamentally drift into the low-doc sector. If you don't want to go for it, if that sounds scary, that's cool because you can go back to my one, two, three plan. Buy three properties, sell one, pay off one, use the rent of that one to pay off the next one. Or buy, you know, four properties, pay down due, pay off the debt on two It can really be as simple as that. And certainly it will help you in your retirement, that extra cash flow, even if it's $50,000 from real estate, plus your superannuation, um, you're going to be absolutely doing real well. Um, so don't give up, keep going, get into it. And I tell you what, um, don't be scared of uh, playing the finance game for what it is. Remember, as you begin, use the power lessons of tax. Tax minimization is a great way to create more deposits. And for me, I'll leave you with this story. Uh, I think it was my fourth property and I got a check back from the tax department for $75,000 because all the properties I had, I had maximum depreciation on, I had maximum uh, benefits from the tax department. And at that point in time, I literally got $75,000 back in tax. I took that $75,000 I made in my uh, taxable year and I bought a property with it. So as we know, tax minimization strategies work and eventually passive income strategies work. I hope you've got to understand a blend of the two. So you can map out your destiny when it comes to property investment. I'll tell you what, I hope you've enjoyed the episode. I've certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. For now, Sam Saggers, The Urban Property Investor, signing off. Thanks for tuning in to The Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.